0: I am Alon Ben-Mir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Manhaza Freedy, Director of the Holocaust, Genocide, and Interfaith Education Center at Manhattan College. Dr. Freedy is an Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Manhattan College, where she teaches Islam and the Holocaust. In this episode, we discuss the misperceptions of relationship between Jews and Muslims, what approaches can be taken to create reconciliation between Israelis and Arabs? The rise of anti-Semitism in the United States, and the future of religious coexistence. So let, let, go, let me go back. Um, you know what has, in fact, uh, created that misperception and misconception about the relationship between Jews and Israel, Jews and uh, Muslim, and I think is the, the creation of the state of Israel is a major factor obviously, and the, the Nakba, what happened to the Palestinians mm-hmm. in 1948, and, of course, the Holocaust. So that created a certain mindset yeah. that has been extremely difficult to navigate, modify, yeah. alter, or change, yeah. even to this at this point. In fact, things might have gotten just worse. But in this particular session, I don't do the talking.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> you do the talking. I okay. <laughs> said, so, at the beginning, what did, in fact... Uh, brought you to the point where you felt that um, study of holocaust and what happens in the relationship between Jews and Arabs uh, have a great deal of relevance to what's happening today around the world and specifically in the Middle East.
1: Well, I mean, I think for me the holocaust in terms of dating it from 1933 to 1945 is an incredibly important period even for the Muslims. And I think that, that period of colonization for Muslims, fighting against colonization, looking at the map of not just Western Europe, but also Eastern Europe and North Africa, to me was resonating with the idea that how can I build a history, build a new way of thinking about the Holocaust, expanding it, but also including Muslims that were perpetrators that were bystanders, but also were rescuers. So for me, my the whole impetus of my work is about cooperation. Mm-hmm. It's about collaboration. And also, um, I was experiencing a lot of Holocaust denial in my community, um, more so Holocaust relativization, and I felt that it was my duty as a Muslim to put it on paper and acknowledge it, and acknowledge it, the enormity of it, because I believe... As a Muslim, you have to acknowledge each other's suffering; mm-hmm. otherwise, you cannot have dialogue. It does does not work at all. Um, so, therefore, that's how I I thought this piece of history should also include Muslim voices.
0: Right. So, so from what you from your study research, to what do you attribute the lingering um, discord? from a various perspective, psychological, political, and otherwise, between the Jews and the Muslim at this juncture?
1: I mean, again, uh, one of the things that I discuss in my work is how, um, before the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, how Muslims and Arabs saw Israelis, or Jews, let's put it Jews, coming in from all over the world as a European colonial settlement. They were not seen as Jews, but they were seen as white Europeans coming into the Middle East. That effect is still very much prominently there. It doesn't mean that it, it was pre-1948. And this is a part of history that people are not studying and not looking yeah. at. As how were the how were Jews perceived when they were started to migrate into Palestine at that point from the 1918s? in big, huge ways, 1920s, 30s, and then finally in the 40s. The perception of the Arabs and the Muslims was, oh my God, here they come, the European colonizers, without knowing the history of the Holocaust, without knowing the history of anti-Semitism, without knowing that this was Jews were migrating because they were being pushed out. These are the stories I want to fill Mm. in for these perspectives.
0: So how about then the Jews who came (coughs) from the Middle East and North Africa, and today they constitute more than 50% of the Israeli population, yeah. which means it's true, what you said, the, the Shkenazi Jews came from Europe, they were earlier immigrants to Palestine exactly. yeah. than the Jews coming from the Middle East and North Africa. Yeah. But today, the, the Arab world, to some extent, and I don't want to generalize, because the relationship between Israel and some of the Arab countries is changing rather rapidly because of Iran and other but the Arabs still see the Israelis, be they Ashkenazi or Sephardic Jews, as a single entity. Mm-hmm. And other than the Arabs, and other countries, in fact, even Iran, for example, today distinguishes between Israelis and Jews. Mm-hmm. Where do you, where, where do you, how do you assess that? Where do you find the the, the problem in there? That is, whereas the Jews in Arab world lived. They were not persecuted. there was only a couple of incidents I think that we know historically in Iraq in 1942 mm-hmm. or43 mm-hmm. when there was a limited pogrom against mm-hmm. the Jews mm-hmm. because Rashid Ali at the time joined mm-hmm. uh, you know Hitler and so he there was a couple of pogroms against it but historically the Jews in Europe suffered far greater absolutely. than the Jews in the Arab world absolutely but then again the Arab states still see or the Muslim at large still see. Israel, albeit majority of Sephardic Jews who actually came from Arab countries, into, this, into Israel. So where do you find the difficulties in your approach to try to reconcile? Does this issue come to the fore ever?
1: It does, and I mean one of the things, uh, so there's a couple of things. I want to mention that uh, there was a high influx of Arab Jews after 1952. Um, and we're talking about post-establishment of Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, There were no programs, but there were melas in places like Morocco where they Mm -hmm. were ghettoized. Mm -hmm. Um, There were certain instances of anti-Semitism in the Arab world because of the establishment of Israel, but they were never seen as insiders. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is one of the problems that the Arab and Muslims like myself have to deal with Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of accept that that was a tension that went on. The second thing is why Israel is seen as more European or Ashkenazi is because of the involvement of the British and the Americans. Of course, of and course. you can't separate that moment in terms of looking at that. Um, if you look at most of the uh, Arab countries, uh, were not independent in 1948. I mean, I'm from Pakistan. We were independent in 1947. Mm, mm. We had a bloody war. With yes, India, yes. right? Which we're still More dealing once. with the consequences of that today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about that as well as being as a daughter of refugees, mm-hmm. you know, that had to move from India into what is Pakistan now. So there is, it's very complicated when you say, you know, all Israelis are seen this way or that way. Um, there are a lot of ways that Israel is seen as a Western state. It may not be a Western state to Ju- uh, Jews and Israel, Israelis. But to the it is, Arab, perceived, yeah, it is perceived that I way. I agree. Yes. And this must be openly set to Jews for them to have that dialogue and say, look, this is how we see ourselves. And I think that's an important way to create that conversation. And that's what I do in my work. Mm-hmm. I do I just taught a, a class on Muslims in the Holocaust. I talked about North Africa. I talked about um, how Israel is seen. I I did not talk about whether Israel was right or Palestine was right. I gave them a bunch of different perspectives in the last two weeks for them to sort of look at this problem because essentially I'm not Palestinian. um, But I speak for the peace between Muslims and Jews outside of Israel and Palestine because I think that is carried over into America as well.
0: True. So to what extent from your perspective then Israeli-Palestinian conflict, A, making their work much more difficult, because that conflict is continued to consume both societies. And when you talk about the Palestinian will say, "Well, the European committed the genocide, and we are paying the price. Mm-hmm. How do you tackle that argument? When you speak to Palestinians, or when you speak to many supporters of the Palestinian cause, which I happen to believe in, I believe that the Palestinians have a legitimate cause, have a legitimate right to establish a state. Mm-hmm of their own in Palestine, side-by-side side, Israel, really it's a two-state solution. So how do you tackle that when I'm sure you are faced with this issue? You know, we are paying the price for what, the, for the, for what, for what happened to the Jews in Europe.
1: You know, I think Palestine definitely needs their own state. Um, I just finished a wonderful memoir by Yosef uh, Bashir, called Memoirs of My Father, I don't know if you read it. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how his family was under, in his house were Israeli really soldiers for five years and the way that they were brutalized. But he kept on the course of peace. He went to Brandeis, he wrote this book, he believes in the cause of peace. I think the problem with looking at Palestine from the outside is I don't know what's going on in this inside. They want peace, but at the same time, Israel keeps encroaching on land and the economic infrastructure. And I think, I've said this openly, that the blockade against Gaza must end. They must have self-determination. But in order for them to have self-determination, they can't use genocide as a reference. And I'll tell you why, because I teach genocide. Under the genocidal definition, um, there are 1.2 million Israeli Arabs living openly in Israel. If it was a genocide, they would not be allowed to do that.
0: Who, who would not be allowed to do what?
1: Isra- there would be no Pal- Arab Israelis allowed in Israel. Um, so th- according to the definition of genocide is that you take a group, an ethnic group, and you create a massacre against them.
0: So you're suggesting genocide by Israelis of Palestinians? Yeah. I see. Well,
1: Because that's the argument that's made yeah. from the Palestinians. I
0: assume, assume for a moment that you are addressing a mixed audience of Israelis and the Palestinians. Yeah. You believe in what you believe, and you want to have that reconciliation process take place. And there is a Palestinian issue still in the middle of this whole discussion. How do you... I'm not challenging you. I'd like to know how do you approach it. How do you address such mixed group who have a completely different views about their rights? They have each claim right, which to some extent is it? they do have right, both sides. How do you try to mitigate those differences if you are addressing the same audience at the same time?
1: Okay, so what I do is I talk about acknowledgement of suffering. I try to start with uh, looking at that the, if an Israeli would sit with a Palestinian and say, yes, you are suffering, you don't have a nation, but we have a right to Palestine as well or Israel, and vice versa. The Palestinians should also understand that they have no place. There is no land, there is no homeland. They should understand the theological implications of what Israel means. Um, They should understand the migrant history of Israel, anti-Semitism today and and before for, you know, 5,000 years. And, And I think if you can acknowledge the suffering of one another, you can actually have dialogue. That's what I keep saying. But in order to get them to do that, you have to build a safe spot, a safe space. But you have someone who says... For the Palestinians. For the Palestinians. Okay. And I think that when you have... You know, I, I go to a lot of interfaith dialogues, and frankly, some of them are useful, and some of them are completely not, because they're not talking about Palestine and Israel. And that's something you have to do. Last summer, I went with the Sisterhood of Salam Shalom. I was their academic leader, and I took 52 Jewish and Muslim women to Auschwitz, and I was in Berlin, in um, Berlin. And I had that discussion uh, with the women about Israel and Palestine. And they didn't agree, honestly. They didn't agree always. But the discussion happened, the tension was gone. We are aware that this is a problem. When we were in Berlin, I talked about how people had to leave their homes. And I said, now, what parallels can we think of, right? And I was very open with it and courageous with it. Because for me, in my heart, I want both Israelis and Palestinians to have a place, a state, and have their own self-determination. So I think if, you're, if you are scared, or if you have some kind of uh, motivation, then I think dialogue is not possible.
0: But then the Palestinians can have the legitimate argument, as of today they would say, wait a minute, um, you're talking about brotherhood and, and, uh, and love and compassion between the two mm-hmm. people. But here we have Israel as established major major actually global power, and we are still suffering in refugee camps. So how can you possibly reconcile between the two groups? One is already established significant power and the other one languishing in refugee camps. So when you talk to them about understanding and compassion, and you have to understand each other, how far can you take that when you are sitting with Palestinians who continue to suffer day in and day out? by living under the conditions that they live today.
1: Well, I mean, I think this comes down to the issue of trust. Um, if Palestinians... Well, how do you
0: trust someone that, you, that has taken away your home, for example, or has taken away your village, or has destroyed your... demolished your... By you
1: know, saying we're willing to reconcile with you if we can live side by side. Um, but I think that you can't have a conversation if... I mean, Israelis don't trust Palestinians. Um, With well, there's zero trust between the two sides. Yeah, no so, so the question is how are you going to negotiate something like peace um, when you don't trust the Palestinian leadership or the Israeli leadership? And well, I how think do
0: you create trust? I mean, you cannot just say from now on, from now on let's trust each other and shake hands, and we're going to live side by side By
1: good leadership, Alan. We just don't have good leadership on either side, I'm sorry to say. If you, I mean, I get this question a lot. So there's a lot of anti-Semitism on campuses uh, across the nation. And I've been brought in to do mending and dialogue. Mm -hmm. And I've realized that the leadership is not good on campuses. So the, the, the person who's heading MSA, Muslim Student Association, is not doing the right job. It's not leading the way. You're advising students. The leader of Hillel is not doing the right job because they're bringing in speakers that can antagonize it doesn't mean you bring you bring in people who don't have freedom of speech but this is how you lead your students and say i'm the msa advisor at manhattan college my students have to go through me and say dr Afridhi, we have this speaker what do you think and if i see that no this is an offensive speaker but let's bring in a palestinian and an israeli that are talking about peace you see mm-hmm. what i mean so you have to have that leadership even in nation building It comes from the small grassroots up to to the nations.
0: I I fully agree with you. Israel and the Palestinians, especially the last um, 15 years or so, even more than that, going back to Rabin, possibly, there is a crisis of leadership. And on both sides, not just, I think, Israel even more so than the Palestinians, there's a crisis of leadership. And neither was willing, they have their own set of beliefs set of ideologies, and they were not, not willing to sit down and make the kind of compromise mm-hmm. necessary. So trust, distrust was prevailed, and mm-hmm. continued to prevail. Mm-hmm. And to mitigate that, obviously it takes more than just uh, saying, I want to trust you. So you're going to have to go through different kind of processes.
1: Yeah, and, and these are, you know, they are challenges and struggles. I mean, uh-huh. I am walking a line between anti-Semitism and Islamophobia today. The hottest topics. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes I don't know what's going to happen, even in my work. Um, But as long as I keep it honest and do my work and listen, listen to each other, I think it's possible. Um, I also want to say not all Palestinians agree with what they want. Not all Israelis agree with what they want for Israel. So that's another aspect that we keep missing. I mean, I can't sit here and say, this is what Palestine wants. Maybe you can't sit there and say, this is what Israel wants. Because there's so many diverse views. Some Palestinians want to go back to 1967. Some Palestinians want, we want Israel. Some people want two state, one state. So there's all these different ways of looking at it. But there's no leadership who said, okay, look, if we want to give you economy, for Palestinians especially, electricity, water, clean water, schools, infrastructure. We have to do something that is compromising but also good for the future. That has not happened.
0: Well, it's not happening again. It's a political consideration. There is a certain level of economic collaboration, obviously, between Israel and the the Palestinians and the West Bank. Even now with the new... uh, Let's call it "quote unquote" deal between Israel and Hamas, talking about longer, much longer ceasefire, which could change the dynamics in mm-hmm. Gaza itself. Mm-hmm. But let me let me go back to, you know, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. I think this is, this have you ever been asked the question? Uh, Jews and Muslims are Semitic, mm-hmm. both of the same source. So anti-Semitism is not just Jewish, because the Arabs are also Semite. You see? I mean, how, my, how often do you come across that kind of discussion? A
1: lot. I have a whole section in my book about it. And as a matter of fact, Semitic people are also people, linguistically, who spoke a language. For example, I'm Muslim, but I'm not a Semite. I'm Asian. Yeah. So there are a lot more Muslims that are not Semites. Um, so there's, you know, like 20% of the Muslim population is Arab. is Asian, African, Eastern European, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. So there is, again, this problem um, of looking at it. I think Islamophobia, I mean, we don't like the term either because it's like you're fearful of Muslims, has become a term from 1987 when it was established. But it's also a term that kind of says, okay, a Muslim who's an Asian or African can also feel this kind of uh, hatred or prejudice. So I think that's the difference. I've been asked that question. Um, I think anti-Semitism itself was established um, in 1874 um, that was only particular for Jews. It doesn't mean it can't apply for others, but it has a whole history uh, which goes way back to the 1870s.
0: Well, actually, I mean, uh, certainly it was anti-Semitism existed then. Well, I think anti Semitism, you can take it back even more. Like yes. Years. Yeah, no, but mean, the this term is a itself. Time, a yeah. time of memorial. Of course. They were resistant to Jewish existence uh, throughout the world in more than 140 different countries. And to this day, uh, many Jews continue to be dispersed in so many different countries, notwithstanding the fact that there is a Jewish state co- called Israel. Yeah. Let, let me ask you about the question of anti Semitism. From your perspective, to what do you attribute the rise of anti-Semitism nowadays? Because there was always anti-Sem- anti-Semitism, historically speaking, but there's this uptick with anti-Semitism more so than ever before. And that as, uh, now as we witness it, witnessing it, why do you think there's such a rise in anti-Semitism at this particular time more than any other time before?
1: Well, if you look at the history of anti-Semitism or you look at the history of Europe and America, whenever there's a political upheaval, there is anti-Semitism. The Jews are scapegoated. Why? That's a million-dollar question. People ask me that all the time. Why the Jews, right? But particularly now, we have groups like the alt-right, the white nationalists, um, recently the black Israelites. Um, We have many, many different forms of of looking at a platform that says Jews have control, they have the money, and there's always this conspiratorial kind of feeling. Anti-Semitism was always in this country since the founding times in this country, including you know, big figures like Henry Ford, who wrote The International Jew that nobody really wants to talk about. Um, and I always say, I don't think America really cares about anti-Semitism. It's just been part of the fabric of where we are. But, but what but I, think I think is think happening now is that there's a permissibility of talking about minorities that are ruining the fabric of this country, which is, if you look at the platform of the white nationalist groups, the first thing they talk about is Jews in their alma mater. Mm-hmm. Right? Well,
0: the Jews will not replace yeah,
1: us. Jews will not replace <laughs> it. <laughs> so and then, you know, th- I mean, we're also in that group, Muslims. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that it's just... Because Jews are first and it's, you know, any other immigrant and blacks. So this is a whole problem of looking at maintaining and containing something authentically that is white, which is never going to be possible. There is no no such thing.
0: Let me follow this with two separate questions. To what extent do you think Trump himself contributed to anti-Semitism, if at all?
1: I think he did indirectly. Um, I think that I can't blame racism on one person. Um, just like when I when I teach about Nazi Germany, I can't say Hitler created it. There were thousands and millions of people that supported Hitler that must have felt some hatred towards Jews, that did nothing for the Jews. Um, I think these groups were always there. There were hate groups all, already um, online for the last decade. They've just increased now and been more open. And I think it's an anti-immigrant thrust that's going on right now more than anything else. And the Jews are implicated into this thrust. Um, people are also...
0: But don't you, do you think that Trump uh, views and feeling position vis-à-vis white supremacists, which he finds good people on both sides, as he stated time and again, uh, has given rise to anti-Semitism? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, uh, so, so we have him... Here is an element that contributed well, to Well, again,
1: that. it comes back to what yeah. we were saying, the yeah. leadership, right?
0: Well, no question. So if no you're question. not going to come out and say... Uh, uh, how about Israel and the Palestinian? Do you think they contributed to the anti-Semitism?
1: Yes, definitely. In, wi- in which way? I right mean, if you look at uh, European anti-Semitism, which is different from American, and I've done some research there, is a lot of the anti-Semitism there is coming from white Europeans, but also Muslim mm-hmm. Europeans. Um, and it's coming from that resentment and that, uh, that idea of immigrant fighting, infighting. Um, whereas in, in actually in the United States, I have to say, as a Muslim American, there are very few incidences of anti-Semitism. Muslims and Jews in this country have really a good future. Um, there are more alliances in this country than I've ever seen. I'm part of those alliances. There are open condemnations from both Jews and Muslims about anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Um, It's pretty incredible what we can do here in the United States and I keep bringing that hope back even at this time Because there is religious freedom here and we are we are going to maintain that openly and I think that is the hope I come with and that's why I I choose to live in the United States. So are you
0: using the relationship of American and Muslim Jews as a, a microcosm? Yeah. For the future. Yeah. And what's, what, what sort of, exa- I'm not uh, investigating, I'm really, really asking. Yeah, sure. what, what sort of, for uh, um, example, we look at today manifestation of anti-Semitism in the United States. It has always been committed by white supremacists, hardly a Muslim was mm-hmm. charged with crimes of anti-Semitism. I mean, they were... Um, certain muslims actually uh, attack American mm-hmm. uh, Soldiers rather than necessarily mm-hmm. Jews for that mm-hmm. matter. So I agree with you There is a different kind of relationship among the Jews and the muslim here in the United States And mm-hmm. Europe it's probably is more intense I think there's more anti-semitism in Europe than there is in America and I agree with you There, There is a there's ten, more tense relationship mm-hmm. between the two groups But to what extent you feel that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict contributed to anti-Semitism. If you if you think there is a, if that contributed any,
1: yeah, I mean I think it does, and I, I I'll speak from the, from my personal perspective, not for all Muslims, 1.5 billion of us. But I think what happen, what ha, has been happening slowly, is that Palestine has become a a place of. Complaint for Muslims. It's become a place of ummah, brotherhood, mm-hmm. sisterhood for Muslims. But here's my angle, right? So I also work with, uh, I, want, I work with the Uyghurs. I'm trying to get them into some kind of an act, into Congress. I've done work with Rohingya Muslims. I did work with Sudan in 2005. And my question to all my Muslim brothers and sisters is, there are also other genocides Worse, um, why don't we speak about that? And it's a big question in my mind all the time. And I think it's because of this political realm of Israel and Palestine, because it has this Western nuance on it, because it's a leftover humiliation of colonization that is displaced. So I think that's where the anti-Semitism comes from. Look what the Jews are doing to our Muslim brothers and sisters. Well, look at Muslims, what we're doing to our brothers and sisters. Look at Chinese who are doing it to our brothers and sisters. Look at to Myanmar and look at what they're doing to our brothers and sisters. Look at Arab Africans, what they're doing to our African brothers and sisters. This is a contradiction that I'm fighting within my own community. Um, because I feel that if we are going to acknowledge suffering, let's do it in an equal way. No,
0: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, today, Muslims are killing more Muslims, by far, by far more than Muslim killed Jews and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you look at uh, what's going on in Syria, mm-hmm. what's happening in Yemen, what's happening in in most of these Arab countries, mm-hmm. the violence with Muslim, against Muslim.
1: So, I, I think just going with your question about Palestine, it becomes a displacement. It becomes a place of saying, look, we're, you know, we all have to band together, but let's band together in serious ways locally as well. Um, and, I mean, I can't fix all that. I can only do advocacy work from where I'm at um, and also speak out. I mean, my next project for the book, for my book is about the voiceless Muslims. And those are going to be, you know, the Rohingya, Kashmir mm-hmm. and the Chinese Muslims where there is no voice. Um, and my question is going to be like, you know, is there a place in Islam, my tradition, where we can heal these wounds? Um, what do we do with this wounding? How do we raise our kids? For example, in Syria, if you're born, you're five years old, you've only seen what? Death. What is going to happen to that child in the future? Um, And what is Islam, Muslims, preparing for the future of our children?
0: What are some of the recommendation steps that you suggest in your writing that both sides need to take in order to begin this process of mitigating their differences, their hatred, their distrust with one another? That is what you're saying to them is perfectly legitimate you know we have to have better relationship we have to begin to trust one another because we have, we have we coexist side by side we have no other place to go Israelis and Jew, and Palestine are basically stuck there's no place for them to go they have to coexist by design as if it was ordained mm-hmm. they are there and they're going to go anywhere so, so there's no question. They, need to be, they, need, they must change the dynamics of the relationship between the two sides, or they will continue to kill each other for another hundred years. What suggestion do you make to Muslims, be that Palestinian or Pakistanis or Saudis or others, given the changing international dynamics today and the various conflicts that are sweeping the Middle East?
1: Well, number one, my suggestion to all my Muslim brothers and sisters is that they have to be self-critical. You have to look at yourself. You have to look inward. And Islam talks about reflection and inward thinking and ilm and knowledge. And then you start to look outward and see what you can do. Number one is to be self-critical, self-aware. Where have we made mistakes? Where have we ignored certain aspects of who we are? Number two is to acknowledge that others also have suffered because of Islam and also us. And number three is to bring in to dialogue the people that we think we have victimized. Mm-hmm. Those are the three strategies I think can go for anybody. But those are the three ways that we can actually be open. And I mean, you know, I keep thinking of the Qur'an. It's funny as I'm talking because, um, you know, we are told in the Qur'an that God looks into your heart. You cannot hide anything from God. And so if you live that way, and you acknowledge that there are things that you have constantly repeatedly not looked at because of avoidance, or it's too painful, it's time for us to do that. Because we are, essentially, Muslims are smart, they're entrepreneurs, they're so successful in the United States, you know, we bring a lot of expertise, and um, we have had a wonderful civilization, more inventions than a lot of religious cultures um, I tell my students about Greek philosophy and the translation that Jews and Muslims do together in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are just beautiful things to celebrate. Um, but we have we have to look inward and then look at what we've created and how to deal with that in terms of the issues of Palestine or Israel or mm-hmm. what's going on in different parts of the world.
0: Well, what do you think? What is the stopping the group you're addressing who need to look inward, who need to look approach it the way you just described it what is stopping them from pursuing that from trying to do that what are the elements both external or internal elements that are discouraging or preventing them from actually saying well we it is what it is We're we're going we have to live with these people in one form or another
1: well i think that the leadership or the teachings of islam all over Eastern Europe to Western Europe to Asia, Africa, Middle East, have really, really damaged my people. Um, Islam is a, a wonderful religion to follow, but it's not just blind faith. Um, I think a lot of Muslims today believe, oh, you know, God will take care of us. If God says you take care of yourself first, and then I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. And so somehow there has been this kind of failure and um, I would say laziness on the part of Muslims to not take action and not to recreate communities and not all Muslims I mean, I want to be fair Uh, There is some great work that Muslims are doing all over the world, but I'm again talking about this leadership and real leadership about what Islam is and to teach Islamic knowledge not just the Quran but the context of where the Quran came from um, the context of the inventions and the kind of renaissance that Islam went through. And I think those things have just sort of been left out. And part of it is because uh, of, of the hundreds of years of colonization, um, the lack of, of initiating that into our education system, um, and some of it is because we became lazy. You know? And we left too many people out of the loop, um, my country is an example of illiteracy. It's very sad for me. Pakistanis are incredibly successful, but when you go back home and you speak in English, people look at you and say, what are you talking about? We, there was a time when people, everyone spoke English, and now we have sort of you know, left, left these people out, and I think this is a big problem.
0: One other question. To what extent from your perspective, religion, be that Judaism or Islam or Christianity, have played a role in creating the current circumstances. I'm not talking about economics, political, but there's a religious dimension to various conflicts today. Be that even even between the Shiad and the Sunni, there's a very strong religious component. Certainly between Jews and and Muslims, very strong religious component. And religious is, is is what it is. You cannot rewrite the Quran cannot rewrite the Old Testament. In fact, one is, the Quran is driven in part from the Old Testament, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. did the Christianity. But since religion is a factor and the interpretation of that belief differs mm-hmm. between one another, mm-hmm. albeit the three are considered monolithic, believing in the same God and all of that. How do you go, what's, what role do you think religion can play the negative aspect of it is being played now, and how religion can be used as a positive mm-hmm. tool by which to reconcile differences?
1: Um, it's a great question. You know, I have a PhD in Religious Studies, so this is kind of up my alley. That this is what I teach is Religious Studies. Um, look, religion is a very tricky business. Um, scholars of religion all over the world have still not defined what that is. Because there are so many disputes and diversity. But religion, I think, is a process. Um, I think individuals are born into certain religions, whether they're Jewish, Christian, or Muslim, and don't have the opportunity of questioning. Don't have the opportunity of existential thinking. Um, if, if they had that opportunity, I think it would be a positive force, regardless of what religion we're talking about. Because I am... A Muslim and I accept Judaism and Christianity and the negative influences are because of the laziness of ideology right so you present an ideology to someone and say this is what your religion says but you have no access to that religion you have no access to reading Arabic you have no access to the contextualization of that religion whether it's in Hebrew whether it's in Latin whether it's in English And therefore, you subscribe to it because of the idea of fear. Um, So there are, you know, I've written about extremist verses and how uh, Islamic extremists have taken certain verses and how you can see it in a different light. It's up to you individually. God is not knocking on my door and saying, hey, Menaz, I'm here for you. Uh, Religion is not something that comes to you. It's something that we create as human beings. And if our... Humanness is not reflective, then we are going to take extremist uh, views. I mean it happens in Judaism, it happens in Christianity I mean Crusades are a huge example of that literalism, and then it's happening in Islam as well.
0: yeah well of course you know you're absolutely right I mean <clears throat> religion as such we cannot change the writing of what has being said. Uh, but there's different interpreta- uh, interpretation. And that is really where, where I think your role, my role, other people's role is there, Right Rest there. Mm-hmm. We cannot change the writing in the Quran or writing of the Old mm-hmm. Testament. But for example, the Islam claim, for good or whatever reason, that Muhammad is the last prophet. Mm-hmm. And hence, Moses, Jesus, and all of yeah. that are secondary to that. Although they recognize them as a prophet and all of that. So you cannot really change the fact that a Muslim believe that Muhammad is the last prophet. And the Islam eventually will prevail. That's what many Muslims believe. Mm-hmm. That it becomes the global global religion. Do you come across that kind of argument by Muslims that we are eventually, will take, I hear this from many, many Muslims, we will take it over. one today said it a, few, a, few, a year ago, you will see. Europe will be Muslim, all of it. And many still really believe that given that Muhammad made that uh, mm-hmm. statement, that he, uh, or the Muslim, as the last, last prophet, then they feel this is where it's going to go. What, how do you deal with that when I'm presented with this problem?
1: Well, I mean, I actually read the Quran. and um, the uh, Quran Yeah, I,
0: mean, I read the Quran just the same.
1: <coughs> and the Quran doesn't say that. The Quran says... That um, God cro- will be the judge of all believers, and that could include anyone
0: yeah, um, but but the does also stated that Muhammad is the last prophet.
1: Muhammad is the last last prophet, but be, peace be upon him, but so is Ibrahim uh, is the first prophet. So I mean the thing is that the fact that Ma- uh, Muhammad in the Muslim world is seen as higher than any other prophet
0: that's the point
1: is is an emulation of who he is right it's it's a figure that muslims have for themselves but according to the quran you could be emulating musa or isa or ibrahim it's up to you know the muslim world so when muhammad says you know everything will be um, islamic maybe he means everything will be peaceful because that's where the root of islam is it doesn't mean that we are all going to start praying five times a but day. Don't you
0: th- yeah, sorry, but don't you think this has been impediment so far that is Muslims simply still do not accept other religious as as equal other religions as equal because of that set of belief.
1: I think I think you're right, and this so, is why. Th- how do you combat that? But yourself? I think here in the United States, you will find Muslim Americans who will say, "We accept you as a Jew. We accept you as a Christian, Sikh, even a Hindu." Why is it possible in America that we can do that? Because we can practice our faith the way we want and not have to deter from anything. Whereas in other countries, it's always been a deterrent, I think.
0: Well, I mean, again, uh, unfortunately, you know, in Arab countries, you know, they, they being the majority, so any, any minority is being considered as inferior mm-hmm. because that's, that's what the young children go to school, that's what they are taught. And And so'm I'm, I'm raising these questions because I'm sure you face you've been asked this, and it will be continue to be asked this question. Uh, what is can we can re- reconcile ideologies? We can reconcile economic differences, social differences, uh, philosophies, but it's much more difficult to reconcile religious differences. And I think, this is one of the reasons you know, mm-hmm. that today we continue, Jews and Muslims continue to see each other in a different light. Uh-huh. Had it not been for the fact that um, they, can, they cannot change the way they believe, what they believe. And, and in your effort, in trying to reconcile, trying to create a, a, a you know, mm-hmm. better space, close between the two sides, you you need you've been dealing with that. You're gonna have to be dealing with that. And, I do. So yeah. Wh- wh- what's, what what was your experience so far with that with that that effort that campaign?
1: Well, I think the, I think um, when I'm talking to Jews and Muslims, um, a lot of the Jews and Muslims in the audiences of the training I've done can say we can coexist and not have to accept each other's beliefs. That's a rare thing in the Muslim world, um, but. If, for example, on the 25th of December, um, in Pakistan, we had a holiday. It was also the founder of Pakistan's birthday, but it also was Christmas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in Karachi, they sell Christmas trees and lights and everything. And I think that's wonderful. Um, But there are a group of Pakistanis that probably don't want that. Mm -hmm. But the majority say, hey, you know, we got a day off. This is great. This is the day of Christ. And we celebrate. I have a friend from Bosnia who just said, oh, I took the day off for the Orthodox Christians because she has many Orthodox Christian friends. It's normal. But I think when you start to see the insecurity of a religion, then you start to see a homogeneity. If you can be heterogeneous and be firm, then I think the religion is more confident. And I think this is exactly what I was saying. Symptomatically, we have lost this. You said, you know, kids are taught this in school. You're right. What they're taught in school, honestly, I wouldn't agree with. I want them to have a holistic education.
0: I, I think, I think, in, in the final analysis, you have to also create conditions whereby the interest that one side has with the other supersede the, their religious differences. Right. And I'm, I mentioned this to you now because, for example, the Saudis, the Gulf state are cooperating with Israel because it's of their interest. they set that aside their religious differences, mm-hmm. so we're going to have that when I'm make, basically saying, my or I do what I do in my capacity, you do what you do in my capacity I try to to project that that there is the relationship, albeit exactly what you're saying. religious differences may exist, but they are other elements in in human life mm-hmm. that you should, should be should overcome that mm-hmm. because in the final analysis, it, you know, we're talking about relationship between humans as such, not just a, a set of beliefs. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was really wonderful speaking with you. Thank you. you. Well, now, with with
1: now that we've solved the world's problems, we yeah. can move on. <laughs> Thank you.
0: It's my pleasure. Thank you for coming and taking the time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page. And stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.